You find your way there, let's pray, and we'll look at God's Word together this morning. Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful, merciful Savior, that you are the counselor, comforter, and keeper, Lord, that you are the almighty, infinite Father, the three-in-one, the one-in-three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we are the one who, you are the one that we've come to worship and to give thanks and to praise this morning. And Lord, I pray as we approach your word, that we would humbly submit ourselves to it, that we would be encouraged and challenged to be made more like Christ and to see how he truly satisfies And because of him, we can rejoice and we can be content. Lord, we love you and we give thanks for all these things in your son's name. Amen. Find your way to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 14. If you found your way there, I'll read our passage together this morning. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is a story of a monk, and I'm reading it from a book so I don't mess it up, because that would be terrible to ruin the punchline. The story is told of a monk named Brother John. Brother John entered the Monastery of Silence. And the abbot said, Brother, this is a silent monastery. You are welcome here as long as you like, but you may not speak until I direct you to do so. Brother John lived in the monastery for five years before the abbot said to him, Brother John, you have been here five years now. You may speak two words. Brother John said, Hard bed. I'm sorry to hear that, said the abbot. We will get you a better bed. Another five years passed, and Brother John was called by the abbot. You may say another two words, Brother John. Cold food, said Brother John. And the abbot assured him that the food would be better in the future. On his 15th anniversary at the monastery, the abbot again called Brother John into his office. Two words you may say today. I quit, said Brother John. To this, the abbot replied, it is probably blessed. You've done nothing but complain since you got here. I believe I've shared that story before because one, it's humorous, but it's also a a wonderful reminder of how our words communicate where our heart is at and what our focus is on. It's a funny story, two words, hard bed, cold food, I quit, right? The idea of complaining, of, of not being satisfied, of wanting more. How many times in our lives do we have circumstances or situations or things happening in our life and we would say, hard bed, cold food, or maybe finally, I quit. Maybe not to somebody who's over you in authority, but ultimately to God. God, my my bed's too hard. My food is too cold. Lord, I quit. I quit. I, I, I'm not satisfied. I'm discontent. I'm not happy with the way that things are. It's an issue of being satisfied, of wanting more, of thinking that we deserve more, or not being content in our circumstances. And life, life is hard. Life is difficult. And there are all kinds of things that can draw our heart 
from being satisfied and content to always looking at maybe the negative or what is lacking or how we'd like the things to be better. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we are called to be satisfied in him. That doesn't mean that life is going to be easy, that life's going to go our way all the time. But God calls us in Christ to be satisfied in the midst of the ups and downs of life. Ups and downs, the good times, the times of plenty, of, of when you look at your life and you say, man, this is, this is going really well. And the times of downs when it feels like you're just trying to keep your head above water. God wants us to be satisfied in Christ as we face the ups and downs of life. And that's our big idea this morning from this passage. God wants us to be satisfied in Christ as we face the ups and downs of life. Paul faced many ups and downs in his ministry. Yet through all these things, in the midst of it, he learned to be content with whatever God had for him. And as we approach this Thanksgiving holiday, you might look at your life and say, there are a lot of things I'm not satisfied with. I'm not happy. God, if I could fix this, uh, these are, these are the, the top three things I could fix. It's a good time for us to take stock of God's blessing in our lives. And more than God's blessing, but ultimately God's grace for us in Jesus. That even though from an earthly perspective, we might look at our life and we might say, there's some things lacking here, God. In Christ, we have everything we need. We can face any and every circumstance or situation with joy, contentment, and trust in God's plans for us. So as we look at these few verses here, and as we think of how we are to be satisfied, there are three evidences that our lives will demonstrate that reveal that we are satisfied in Christ. So three evidences that we are satisfied in Christ. First off, we rejoice. We rejoice. Our first point is we rejoice. You look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what is happening here? The letter to the Philippians was written to the church at Philippi. And this was a special church in the heart of Paul, I, I truly believe. He, he really cared for them. Not that he cared for all of his churches, but this one, I think, held a special spot in his heart because of all the events surrounding how it began. If you want to later, you can read Acts chapter 16, how Paul and Silas came to Philippi. And as they came to Philippi, a lot of things happened, Right? Lydia was converted, the seller of purple, uh, her and her household. And then he was being followed around by this young girl who was saying these things about he and Silas, and he kind of, I don't know, got annoyed in a righteous way and cast out the demon that her owners were profiting from. And they didn't like that. And so they caused a ruckus, and Paul and Silas were then thrown in jail. And they were thrown in jail unjustly as Roman citizens uh, <laughs> that was uh, not how they should have been treated. But they didn't, didn't use that, but rather they trusted God in the circumstances. And, and God sent an earthquake to open the jail cell. But instead of them running away, they kept everybody there. And in doing so, witnessed to the jailer. And his uh, life was spared. He was going to basically commit suicide, thinking that he was a dead man because all the prisoners ran free. But yet, Paul and Silas said, no, don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
And that man came to trust Christ. And from these seeds, these new believers, this church began. And you had this, this church that was, that was started by a, in an amazing way. And Paul had interaction with, and I think through his, uh, through his letter, you can see his love for them, right? I thank God upon every remembrance of you. He, he loved them. But Paul fell along some hard times again, and now he's in jail when he's writing this letter. He's been in, in prison because of him testifying of, of the gospel and many other poor reasons that have been levied against him. But the Philippians wanted to help him, but they couldn't. They were a, a poor church. Uh, they, they didn't have the means to, to send a monetary gift, but yet they still sought to be a blessing to Paul. They did this in several ways. They prayed for him, but they also uh, sent Epaphroditus to him. And now it seems as if they were able to finally send a gift to him, their concern. So this is where we are at. Paul is wrapping up his letter, and he's talked about many different things throughout this letter, but now he's kind of coming to these final comments, and he's giving them an update about where he's at. He's in prison, but he's rejoicing. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, abundant, overflowing, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. That word revived is the idea of blooming again. As a tree puts out its buds in the spring or a, a plant that peeks its head through the hard ground with, with a green leaf, that's the idea of reviving, of blooming again. And it's, it's the, they're, they're coming through, in a sense, with life, with, with being a blessing. They've revived their concern for Paul. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. They wanted to help, but they didn't have a chance or an opportunity to. But now they are. And in the midst of Paul's difficulty of being imprisoned and of, of the difficulties that he's facing, he's rejoicing. And that first phrase is important. I rejoiced in the Lord. Paul's letter to the Philippians is one of joy. It's one of the main themes in this letter. And it, it goes well with thanksgiving, right? Rejoicing, giving thanks. And this is different than the majority of Paul's other letters. You read the letter to the Galatians, and Paul actually comes down kind of more severe on the believers in the area of Galatia. Or the letter to the Corinthians, when he's trying to instruct them. There's needs, but here Paul is speaking of joy and thankfulness. And he's rejoicing. Why? Because of the concern of the Philippian believers. Sometimes there's circumstances in our life that, that nobody can fix. That nobody can do something to make it go away. Maybe a circumstance of health, of a sickness or a disease. Uh, you and I don't have the physical capability to go and remove that disease from a person. But even in showing concern for them, it's a great blessing of sending a note or a phone call or a text or, or just a, a quick face-to-face -face chat of saying, hey, I know it's hard, but praying for you. How can I pray for you? That, that concern is, is a blessing. And that's really the idea here. Paul is rejoicing not necessarily because they were able to help him financially, though that is a, a blessing, or, or to fix his circumstances, but they were concerned for him. And he rejoices. He rejoices that they had not forgotten him. 
They sent Epaphroditus. Paul never asked anything of them, but he was thankful for what he needed. He let God move in their hearts. The church wanted to help but had no opportunity, but they still wanted to be a blessing. And so they had concern. They they wanted to, to, to be a blessing to him, and he's thankful for that. He re- rejoices. That idea of rejoicing is, is giving praise to God. And you see how he rejoices. He rejoices in the Lord. He gives thanks to God because of their concern for him. Somebody who is satisfied in Christ will rejoice in God in the midst of a difficult circumstance. Somebody who is satisfied in Christ, will rejoice in God in the midst of a difficult circumstance. That doesn't mean it's a fake joy. You still realize the difficulties that are there. It's not a forced happiness, but rather it's a, it's a rejoicing in God, seeing how he's at work. Because Paul could say, thanks for being concerned about me, but I'm still in jail. Have you ever heard the phrase Debbie Downer? Right? You want to be an encouragement? You know, well, I can always, it's like an Eeyore, the Eeyore effect, right? Oh, you know. Oh, well, thankful for the rain, but now I'm wet. You know, it's, it's always that, just that negative, that gray shade. <laughs> but Paul is saying, no, I'm rejoicing in God because of your concern for me. Though you really couldn't necessarily do anything for me, I'm thankful that God has moved in your hearts. He's, he's rejoicing in God and what he's doing. His perspective is right. He's not necessarily overly concerned with his exact circumstances and how they can fix it, but rather what God is doing in their midst. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Charles Swindoll, I maybe heard him on the radio before. He said this, and it's probably not original with him, but he quoted it in one of his books. He said, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it. And while that can can start to drift into just be positive and, you know, just positive thinking. But for the Christian, there's some truth in that. There are going to be difficult things that happen to you and some things you can't avoid. It's just the way that life is. Or it's a circumstance that you can't fix. You don't have any control over it. But what can you control? You can control how you react to it. What is your attitude in response? And that's what Paul is doing here. He's rejoicing in what God is doing. What is our perspective on how we view the events in our lives? There's an old phrase, right? Happiness depends upon happenings, while joy depends upon Jesus. Paul rejoices in the Lord, what God is doing because of their concern for him. And the only way to truly rejoice is through Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that some more. You look at difficult circumstances in your life, things that people would say, this would just overwhelm an individual. But yet, as a believer in Christ, if we are satisfied in Christ, we can face those things. And with the joy that is deep-seated, that is not dependent upon circumstances or surface things, but even in the midst of difficulties, we can rejoice. And this rejoicing, like I said, is not a, is not a feigned happiness but it's a settled peace and satisfaction in God. Paul rejoiced in the Lord because God was at work. Do we have joy in the midst of difficult circumstances? I don't know about you, but if I was in prison as Paul was, 
And all we want to do for something for you, but we really can't. Well, thanks for nothing. (laughs) Thanks for nothing, right? You can't fix my circumstances. What good are you, right? But Paul has that perspective where he's rejoicing in God and how he's at work in the lives of the Philippians. Do we have joy when we have an opportunity to give or to receive? I love um, a little bit further down in verses 14 through 20 when he talks about this gift of sharing in the, in, in the, in the troubles, the difficulties. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The idea here is he's rejoicing that they have a heart to help others. It's somebody who is maybe a bit of a miser with their money, with their property, with their material goods, and they hang on to it. But then God works in their lives, and then they are moved to be others. And while you're thankful that they give a gift to somebody, you're more thankful that their heart has been turned by God to be a blessing. That's what Paul is saying. He says, yes, the gift is nice, but the greater thing is that God is at work in you. And that's what's causing him to rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord when we are satisfied in Christ that no matter our circumstance, God is at work. And are we looking for opportunities to rejoice in what God is doing? What he's given us by giving to another. We can worship God and be satisfied in him through giving to others, through being a blessing, by being thankful that they, others want to be a blessing and by seeing what God is doing in other places. It's why we pray for our missionaries. It's why we pray for sister churches and for other gospel preaching churches in our areas because we should be called to rejoice that God is at work not only in our midst, but also in others. That's when we are satisfied in Christ. It's not about us, but it's about in what God is doing. A life that is satisfied in Christ will rejoice in God's work in their own life, but also in the lives of others. So we rejoice. Second evidence that we are satisfied in Christ, we are content. In verse 11, we are content. And Paul says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am be to be content. Paul is saying, I'm not, I'm not putting a guilt trip on you. I'm not dropping a hint, right? Uh, I was good at this in college with my parents when they wanted me to come home and visit. I don't know, gas ah, it takes a lot of gas in the car. It was amazing how mom or dad then would also say, well, here's a 20, go you know, fill up with gas on the way home. Selfishly, we can be like that, right? We can make a comment in order to prey upon somebody's goodness. <laughs> Otherwise known, we can, we can be a mooch, right? <laughs> You can, you can pray upon somebody's goodness. And that's not what, what Paul is doing here. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's saying, I, I'm not saying these things to make you feel bad so you'll seek to be a blessing to me. That, that's not what I'm saying. Paul is saying is that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He's learned to be content. Contentment. Contentment is a huge thing, I believe, that's lacking generally in our world around us. People want more and more and more. They want 
the latest and greatest. They want the, <coughs> the next thing that will fix all their problems, right? That if I had just this, all my problems would go away because there's a lack of contentment. There was a study done a few years ago of different generations and the, uh, the, the silent generation or, or the generation before the baby boomers, they asked them a, a variety of questions and, and their wants, they asked them different things that they would like, that they want, that they thought they needed. Uh, as they compiled those, there was an average of 70 wants or desires in that generation. It'd be nice to have this, or I need this, I want that. And then they did the next generation. And that was about 200. And then the generation after that, there was approximately 500 wants. You see how over time, things and material and as technology grew and all these things, the wants and the needs have, have grown exponentially. Paul's saying, I have learned to be content. This idea of contentment, of being satisfied, and those two words are almost synonyms. But really, contentment is a product of satisfaction. When we're satisfied in something, we are content. Thanksgiving's coming up on Thursday. Many of you are going to have a big meal. You might wear your stretchy pants to that meal, right? And as you finish that meal to the point where, like, you can't catch your breath, and you lay down on the couch, and there's the football game on, or time with family, and do you want any pie? Oh, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, I guess I can have some, right? That idea of being satisfied, of being full, that's, that's what satisfaction communicates, that we, we are full, and that leads to contentment. I, I'm all right. I, I, can't, I can't eat anymore. I, I, I'm, I'm full. I'm satisfied. And so, therefore, we are content. In Christ, as we think of our lives in Jesus Christ, when we are satisfied in, in him, we are content. And, and understand that this is something that's learned. It's not just automatic. And I think that's important for us. It, it's a skill. It's, it's a discipline to remind ourselves of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. Because our natural tendency is to want more. In, in our flesh, we want something that will satisfy it goes back to the Garden of Eden, right? As the, the serpent talked to Eve, did God really say? And what did the serpent say? You will be like God. Rather than being satisfied and content with how God has provided for you and how he's designed you and where he put you, no, they wanted more. They wanted something else. And, and that has continued on through our sin nature, right? That we want more, that we are never satisfied. We want these things to bring us happiness or joy or peace. And we seek for all the satisfaction. A silly thing that I used to be satisfied in or my satisfaction, my contentment would be, would be built upon something like college football. I love college football. The Hawkeyes keep winning and they shouldn't. <laughs> That's okay. But it's amazing and, and God has worked on me on this. Ten years ago, the Hawks would lose, and it ruined my day. That's my wife. I'd be in a terrible mood. I, I was seeking for satisfaction and joy and happiness in, in a college football team. You think, that's kind of foolish. Yeah, but there are other things in your life that are things that you enjoy, that you seek to find satisfaction and contentment rather than Christ. 
And it's a something that we have to learn. It's, it's not happens automatically. It's Paul says, I have learned. It's the idea of a, of a process. I have learned by experience. Paul didn't automatically have this when he was saved. And through experiences and through God's faithfulness, he learned to be content. Contentment. That we are satisfied and sufficient uh, and, and that God is sufficient for us. He is all that we need. It's independent of external circumstances. There are some philosophy, some philosophies that uh, pro- promoted contentment for the sake of contentment, right? The, the Stoic philosophers would promote contentment to demonstrate how self-controlled they were. That's not what Paul is talking about. He's not saying be content for the sake of contentment, showing how disciplined you are, but rather that you are satisfied in Christ and that our satisfaction is not from external things, but from what God has done for us in Christ and that no matter what happens, we know that God's in control, that Christ is with us and we have all that we need in him. A.W. Tozer, an author who wrote a great little book called The Pursuit of God, said this about the Christian life. He says, things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended, right? It's necessary. I need to have this. I need this. How many, uh, there, there are whole industries built upon that idea of needing something. Every time a new cell phone comes out, what's really different from that cell phone versus the one that came out the year before? Apart from the number and maybe a different color on the outside, not a whole lot. (laughs) But it's created a desire, a need. I need to have that. But contentment does not depend on what we have, but who we are in Christ. Paul has learned this. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit more. We've been saved from our sin through Jesus Christ. And that is our our greatest need. Our greatest need is not a new car or a new cell phone, more food, better health. All these things, whatever we may say, our greatest need is forgiveness of our sin. And that only occurs through Jesus Christ. Through the fact that he has suffered and died on the cross for you and I. That he was buried and that he rose again. And through his resurrection... That he's alive now and through our faith in him saying, I am a sinner. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I need Jesus. I believe in him. We have forgiveness of our sins. We repent of our sin and we trust in him. That is our greatest need. And that greatest need has been met fully in Jesus Christ. But how often do our eyes wander to the world, right? How often do our eyes see, oh, it'd be sure nice to have that. Oh, I saw so-and-so got that. The idea of keeping up with the Joneses, right? Next door. There was a, uh, a, a psalm that talks about that. Psalm 73. It, it's a great psalm. It's a psalm of, of Asaph. And what Asaph does is he looks at the world. And he says, why do the wicked prosper? Why do unbelievers, people who mock God, have all these earthly treasures? He says they grow fat upon all the things that they have. And he's almost saying, I kind of want to be like that. Think what ease they have in this world because of all that they have. But in the middle of that psalm, his perspective changes. Why? Because he considers their end. What is the end of the wicked? 
judgment, destruction, an eternity in hell. And he says, that is their end. And he says, my eyes then turn, turn to you, God. And, and whom do I have in heaven? Who do I have that is actually truly satisfying? You are God. And though I may see the prospering of the wicked, my eternal satisfaction is in you. And he says, you lead me by my right hand. You protect me. You guide me. And you will keep me safe for eternity. God provides for us our greatest need. There are so many reminders for us in the New Testament of God's provision of being content in him that he will provide from things like money. Hebrews 13, 5, the author says, keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Speaking of God. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God gives us what we need to live for him. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, this great passage from Paul. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's grace is sufficient for us. And his grace is most clearly displayed for us in Jesus Christ. And in our weaknesses, he calls us to be content. Because in our weaknesses, he works in us and through us. And we are made strong when we rely upon him. It reminds us that we are not to be content in ourselves and our circumstances and our things, but content in Christ. God provides for his children in many different ways. Ultimately, through Jesus Christ, our greatest need, salvation in him. Verse 12, Paul continues. And he says this, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He's explaining now how he's learned this being content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret? And this is our, our third point in here is, is we rejoice, we are content, and lastly, we trust. Somebody who is satisfied in Christ will trust in God and what he's doing. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. He's using these extremes. What are some instances when he was brought low? Well, he was humbled. He was stricken with blindness on the on the road to Damascus. Paul was stoned a couple times and left for dead. Paul's been persecuted. He's been hidden. He's been let out of a window in a basket like a child. He's been shipwrecked. He's been in the midst of prison and on trial, accused of wrongdoing that he never did. All these things, he's been brought low, but he's also abounded great Evidence of God's work through his life. He's had highs. He's had lows. He's in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of placing, facing plenty. And you, you don't often think about that, of facing plenty like it's an adversary. But it's often the good times when we have been blessed by God in a great way that our eyes drift from God. 
when we have plenty and hunger, abundance and need, anything. He gives the spectrum, right? It encompasses every circumstance that you or I may be in. And he's learned this secret. This idea of secret is that of like a, a secret code uh, of, a, of a group. It's an initiation. It's this secret thing that not everybody knows. And what is it? Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Some translations say I can do all things through Christ. Christ is the implied him through that pronoun who strengthens me. Through all these things, through the ups and downs, Paul could face them. Why? Because what was the secret is because he knew Christ and he trusted that God would work in him and through him and his circumstances. And he was satisfied in Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He trusted that God would strengthen him. It's what we just read in 2 Corinthians 12. If you want to read more of the circumstances, everything imaginable, you can read 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23, 23 through 33. He was filled. He was hungry. He had abundance and he had need. Yet he trusted God because God was the one who was giving him strength, who was helping him through. He could do all things. He could face any circumstance, not because what Paul wanted to do, but what God was doing through Paul. The Living Bible, a, a different translation, more of a paraphrase, says this about verse 13. This is how they translate it. I can do everything God asked me to do with the help of Christ who gives me strength and power. And I love that, that way that they translate it. I can do everything God asked me to do. So it's not us saying, I want to do something, but it's what God is asking us to do. Many of you are familiar with Tim Tebow, the football player, uh, outspoken Christian, thankful for his witness. But he would write Philippians 4.13 on his eye black, the what you put on your eyes to make you look really tough right there. And some people took that, well, I can, I can win a national championship because I have God with me. Or I can throw touchdowns because I have God with me. That's not what this verse is saying. That's, it's not saying I can go climb Mount Everest because God is with me. No, this verse is saying I can face whatever God sends my way because I'm satisfied in Christ. Because he's going to help me through it because I'm going to trust him. I can do, I love how it says that whatever God asked me to do. So God puts a sickness or a disease in your life. I can face this because God's going to give me strength. God's put a difficult coworker in your life or difficult relationships. I can face this because God has put me here and he's going to give me the strength to get through it. He's put a difficult uh, battle with sin in your life. I can face this difficulty because I know Christ is with me. He's the one giving me strength to get through it. It's not a focus on what we can do, but rather what God is doing in us and through us in what he puts in our lives. Verse 13 hinges on verse 11 and 12. It's through trusting in Christ, Paul can face the paradox of abundance and need, of plenty and starvation. God provides. God directs. God gives us exactly what we need as we need it, and he is there with us through the difficulties of life. So as we look at our life and as we look at the, the things that are blessings and we rejoice in, but also the difficult times, sometimes you come to Thanksgiving and you think, what can I be thankful for? Well, I know all the things that have been difficult, but how is 
God worked through those circumstances? How has God shown himself faithful? How has, how has God used other things? How has God worked in you, your life to show you to rip those things out of your hands that you clung to and said, no, cling to Christ. Be satisfied in him. Are your trials teachers or are they tormentors? God is more than able to change our circumstances, but oftentimes our circumstances are used by God to change us. I think that's important. To make us rely not on our own strength and our own power, but upon his, knowing that there is great peace. We cannot do anything by our own strength, but God gives us the strength through our faith and trust in Christ, through the power of his word, through the help of his Holy Spirit to face the abundance and the need, the plenty and the hunger, the good times and the bad times. So as we approach Thanksgiving, as we stop and reflect as individuals and as families and as a body of believers, are you a thankful person? More than that, are you a satisfied person? A satisfied person rejoices in God and what he's doing in your life, but also in the lives of others. A satisfied person is content with whatever God has brought our way. And a satisfied person trusts that God is at work in the midst of those circumstances. And that we learn to grow, to know Christ more, to partake, to, to be satisfied in him all the more. Paul says this in Philippians 3. Speaking of Christ and knowing him more. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. The idea of seeking after Christ, of being satisfied in him, of, of looking at the circumstances and not dwelling in them, but looking to Christ. May we be a body of believers who are satisfied in Christ, who rejoice, who are content, and trust that God is at work. If you're here and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you can be satisfied in earthly things, but they are passing. They will fade. They will never truly satisfy as something that is delicious and salty, but yet it makes you want to drink more. Christ is that paradox where you drink and you are satisfied, but yet you want more. And there's abundance, so you never run out. Be satisfied in Christ. May we be a thankful people who are satisfied in Christ as we face the ups and downs of life. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to be reminded of Paul's example, but then also how he lived it out, rejoicing and continuing with contentment and trust that we would look to Christ and that we would be satisfied as well. Lord, that we would seek to know Christ more and to enjoy. As we sang already, you are good and faithful. May we continue to look to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.